in heaven. That's his emphasis, in heaven. And who serves in the sanctuary. He uses the word here for the most holy place. Who serves in the sanctuary, the true or the real tabernacle set up by the Lord and not by man. Now recall that the message of Hebrews is that we have something better going for us. We have to keep reminding ourselves, because we're often told otherwise, that authentic Christianity is more than a matter of going to meetings and reading Bibles and attending Bible studies and giving a tenth of our hard-earned income and keeping rules and regulations and maintaining rituals and living up to certain roles. That's not the essence of Christianity. The sum and substance, the pith, the nub, the center of it all is the fact that we have such a high priest. He's the only uh, one that can help us through this action-packed, fast, lane, hurly, burly, bewildering, baffling world that, that we lived in, live in. It's from him that all the power flows to live life as God intends us to live. And that's what the author wants us to know, that we have such a high priest, at once very human and therefore very understanding. Our writer has pointed out that he has experienced all the temptations that we experience, so he's very understanding. He's never put off by our weakness. And he is seated in heavenly places, the place of affection at the right hand of the Father, and the place of authority. As Jesus himself put it, all authority has been given me and given to me in heaven and earth. In other words, he can do anything he wants to do. His hands are never tied. He's never hindered. He can do what he intends to do. And furthermore, he wants to do nothing but good for us. The writer describes him not only as seated in that position of authority, but serving. He's serving us in heaven, in the most holy place. Now, that would immediately raise a question for Jews. It doesn't for us because we don't have uh, the background that uh, Jews had in the Old Testament. But the idea of Jesus serving in, a, in the holy place or the most holy place would be very hard for them to grasp because Jesus was not a priest. I said that before. He was a layman. He was not of the tribe of Levi, and therefore he, he couldn't go into the temple. They wouldn't even let him in the door. And so uh, the writer has to explain for us why and how he has the right to serve in a temple. Now, what he does is set up a, a, a kind of a logical syllogism. Let me read the passage, and then I'll try to explain it to you. Verses 3 through 5. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. That's their job. They offer sacrifices. They mediate. They uh, are go-betweens. They stand between God and man. And they offer up sacrifice for sin. The priests in the temple, and before that in the tabernacle in the wilderness, would sacrifice lambs over which uh, men and women confess their sins, and then those sacrifices in type remove the sins of the world. That was their work. They offered sacrifices. And they had a workplace, verse 5. They serve at a sanctuary that's a copy and shadow of what is in, is in heaven. 
the tabernacle that uh, housed the worship of Israel in, in the wilderness and the temple which Solomon built was the workplace for the priests. Now, when the writer wrote this uh, temple, Solomon's temple embellished by Herod, still stood. It stood until A.D. 70. So he uses the present tense. They're still serving there. Priests have a work to do, and they have a place to do their work. Jesus is a high priest. He's made that point a number of times through the book. He underscores it here. Again, he has a ministry to do as well. However, if it were done here on earth, he could not do it because he would not be permitted to go into the sanctuary. Only Levites could go there. And so uh, the writer explains to us that Solomon's temple, as wonderful as it was, as beautiful as it was, was simply a scale model of the real thing. In heaven, there is a holy of holies into which Jesus came bearing his own blood to make atonement for sin so they can be remitted, sent away. Now, I mustn't think that there's some building up there in the unseen world or out there in the unseen world that uh, is the equivalent of Solomon's temple. That's not uh, the author's point at all. What, what God did was to give patterns, examples, types, illustrations of the spiritual realities, the things that were true in, in the heavenly realm, the unseen spiritual realm. And he warned Moses. Did you note that the way he puts it? This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown on the mount. In other words, Moses' tabernacle was not the end of it all. It was simply a pattern. It was a scale model of something happening that was far greater. Actually, the, the, the word that's used in Hebrew, this is a quotation from the Old Testament from the book of Exodus. The word that's used in the Old Testament is a word that means a scale model. In the New Testament, the word that's used is the word from which our word type comes from. In other words, it's the imprint of a stamp. The stamp is the reality. The imprint is the type. So uh, what the author is telling us is that this uh, little tabernacle that Moses built and later the larger temple which uh, Solomon built are, were both temporary and symbolic. God never intended them to last forever. They were illustrative of some greater reality. Now, he's going to elaborate on this theme and embellish it when we get to chapter 9. He underscores this idea of, of the differences between the heavenly and the earthly sanctuary. But at this point, I simply want to say that what Jesus did was done not in an earthly tabernacle, but rather it was done in the, in the realm of eternal realities, spiritual realities. Now, that may not have too much significance to us, except uh, it just makes it all available to us. That's all. We don't have to uh, catch a plane and then a bus and go to Jerusalem. We don't have to make semi-annual pilgrimages to Zion in order to offer sacrifice for our sins. It's done. It's done. It was done in the realm of heavenly realities, and it's just as close as our mouth and our heart, as Paul puts it. Because heaven's not way out there somewhere in space. Heaven is another dimension, a fourth dimension, an invisible dimension all around us. Paul, in fact, even says that we are seated in heavenly places with Christ right now. So this uh, forgiveness of which he's going to speak, and, and he's going to tell us a great deal of what we have in Christ, 
is available. It's, it's all around us. It's everywhere. We don't have to. We don't have to beg for it. We don't have to plead for it. We don't have to go up to heaven to get it. We don't have to descend to Hades to get it, as Paul puts it. It's just here. All we have to do is ask for it. And it comes to us immediately from this unseen realm. Now that, again, is what I describe as authentic Christianity. It's understanding that there is another realm all around us in which the real thing is occurring. And we can tap that resource at any time. Now, again, you see, our problem is to think like Jews. We don't think like Jews. We think like Gentiles, unless you read a lot of the Old Testament. You know, you don't see some of the problems in this notion that our Lord is operating in another temple in another place. This would raise all sorts of questions to the Jewish mind, uh, primarily the question of the Constitution under which uh, our Lord operates, because if if Jesus is not a priest in a temple in Jerusalem, and you're going to change the whole law because the law made it very clear that there was one central sanctuary, and that's where we worship. So if that one central sanctuary is removed, then that means you've got to change the whole law because the law is like a pane of glass. You break part of it, you break it all. And this introduces the idea of a new arrangement for living, a new covenant, different, very much different than the first and the old covenant, the one that was given at Sinai. And here we have this whole thing again about the vast difference between law and what we call grace in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The words testament and covenant are interchangeable. When we talk about the New Covenant, we're talking about the New Testament. When we're talking about the Old Covenant, we're talking about the Old Testament. And what uh, the writer is saying is that this whole thing is turned topsy-turvy. There are all sorts of changes that are taking place in the law, and we need to discover what they are. Furthermore, this was not some afterthought that the Lord had. He did not, after the cross, uh, suddenly discover, oh my goodness, we have violated the law, we're going to have to rewrite the law. No, as early as the 6th century B.C., during the time of Jeremiah, uh, this notion that there was going to be a new covenant was already promised. It was predicted. And actually it goes all the way back to the very beginning, as we'll see. It's nothing new. And as a matter of fact, the word that's used for new covenant is not the word that's used for something that is absolutely new. It's the word that means fresh, a renewed, a refurbished covenant. Because from the very beginning, it's been God's intention to deal with us according to grace. All right, now let's, uh, let's look at this new covenant as it's described for us, beginning with verse 6. But the ministry Jesus has received is a superior to theirs, that is the ministry of the priests under the old covenant, as the covenant of which he is mediator, go-between, is superior to the old, and it's founded on better promises. In other words, we Christians have a better deal than anyone has ever received. Listen to this. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
Now, I don't want to go into some of the theological problems that surround this uh, passage. I would just bore all of you to death. But some of you might be interested in knowing how I handle this, uh, this particular uh, uh, statement about the New Covenant. It's so clearly given to Israel and Judah, the question might be raised, doesn't this just apply to Jews? And isn't God going to apply this covenant to Jews during the millennial state, during the thousand-year reign of, of Christ, as uh, many Christians believe? Uh, some would say, well, there are two new covenants. There's one to the church and there's one to Israel. Others would say, no, there's only one new covenant which is given to Israel and uh, we are the beneficiaries of it. I have to remain agnostic about how these covenants are applied because the scriptures are not very clear. I don't know what God's ultimate purpose for Israel is. I don't think he's finished with Israel yet, but I don't know precisely how these promises are going to apply to Israel. All I know is that the writer himself in chapter 10, verse 15, if you want to look at it on your own, he says very clearly this covenant is for us. And he's speaking from the standpoint of Christians. Jewish Christians, yes, but Christians. And uh, the scriptures make it very clear that in this, this age there's no Jew, there's no Gentile. Those that are in Christ are in the church of God. So these promises apply to the church. They may yet apply to Israel, they may not. I leave this to you. I have my own opinions. I really don't want to get into that because it would just be confusing to all of us. I would simply say that these promises apply to you. I have any question about that. And therefore, we can read them and uh, take them seriously. Now, this is the uh, covenant, and what he does is give us an extended quotation from Jeremiah 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand. Uh, to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel, declares the Lord. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them in their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest... For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now this is what we refer to as the new covenant, which our Lord purchased with his blood. That statement is made in Luke 11, or pardon me, Luke 22, and in 1 Corinthians 11. And when we celebrate the Lord's table here on the first of each month, those passages are normally quoted. This is the new covenant in my blood, purchased with my blood. The old covenant was sanctified by blood. They slaughtered animals and sprinkled the book and they sprinkled the people and they sprinkled the, the, sac- the, the altars and the sacrifice as a way of indicating that this covenant was ratified by the giving up of a life. The new covenant was ratified by the giving up of a life. We are the recipients of the new covenant because our Lord went all the way. He gave up his life for us. Now, what are the provisions, then, of this new deal that we get, this new arrangement for living? Well, there are three. And I'm going to take them uh, not in the order that they occur in the text, but I'm going to take the second first. Uh, That's, uh, I suppose, my prerogative. Uh, Verse 11. The first provision 
is an intimate knowledge of God. We will know the unknowable. We will personally be acquainted with a personal God. That's what he means when he says, No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they'll all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, to the simplest Christian to the most profound, to the youngest Christian to the most elderly, to the one who first becomes a believer, to the one who's been a believer for years and years. The greatest thing in all the world is that we know God personally. See, that's the point that John makes in his little epistle when he says, I've written unto you, young men, because you know the Father. I've written unto you, old men, because you know the Father. I mean, what else is there to do? I mean, what else matters? We know the Father. I've mentioned before, I think, uh, J.I. Packer's friend who was denied tenure at Oxford University and when Packer was teaching there and they were walking across the, the campus together and, and Packer was commiserating with his friend and his friend said, it, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter at all because I have known God and they do not. You see, that's the greatest thing in the world is that we can know God personally. In, in Romans 5, after Paul spells out all the benefits of, of being authentically Christian and coming into relationship with Christ, the bottom line for him is that we exalt in God. That's all we know him. He's our Father. We can address him as our Father. Or, as the New Testament actually puts it, we can call him Papa. We can call him Abba. Abba is the Aramaic word for Papa. We have that sort of intimacy, and, and we can have that kind of familiarity. When our third grandchild was born, Melissa, for some reason she grew up being scared to death of me. And I'd go over to Randy and Jenny's house, and she'd see me and run. And it just took me months to win her confidence. But uh, finally one day I was rolling the ball back and forth with her, and she started to giggle. And, and then forever after, she's... Whenever she sees me, she just runs into my arms. She says, Papa, she says. You know, and of course, that just makes me feel real good. But see, she doesn't think of me as the very reverend David Roper. <laughs> the awesome Mr. Roper. But just Papa, that's all. And that is, that's such a wonderful truth. We, t- we just take that for granted. We can know God personally, from the least of us to the greatest. That's the greatest thing in all the world. The second thing he says uh, about this new arrangement for living is that he writes our laws in our minds and he puts them on our hearts. In other words, uh, he begins to change us internally. There's an enormous concentration these days on seminars and retreats for self-actualization, you know, in four days you can be made new and there'll be remarkable changes in your life. You'll have a taste of heaven if you just go through this, uh, this retreat. But the amount of change that really takes place is paltry. It just seems to me that, if anything, it makes us more self-centered. Most of us are really concerned about the difficulty with which we change. We don't see a marked degree of change in our lives, no matter how hard we, 
We may try, and we don't know what to do about it. What this passage tells us is that when you become a believer, when you put your faith in Christ, your nature is changed. You become a new creation. You're different than you ever were before. Your nature becomes the nature of Christ. As a matter of fact, Paul is so bold to say you have the mind of Christ. You start thinking like Jesus does. You think God's thoughts after him. That's the new nature. That's what it means to be born again. We come into the world with an old nature, Adam's nature, with all of its downward pull and all of its, uh, you know, the depressing aspects of that, of that nature. And when we become Christians, we have a new nature. Now, for myself, I don't think we have two natures because a nature is what we naturally are. And what we naturally are, I don't know how to put this grammatically, but we are sons of God. That's what we are by our nature. And we still have the old memories and the old obsessive habits and the old uh, problems that we've dealt with all of our life. We still have the flesh with us. That tendency toward uh, independence and self-actualization, you know, and, and we, we struggle with that to the end, end of our days. But something real happens. It's inexplicable. It's very difficult to put your finger on it. But what it is is that we begin to love righteousness and hate iniquity. Well, not so much that we hate it in other people. We just hate it in ourselves. And we begin to long to be something different than we were before. It's not because we've read a, a list of rules and regulations and we have them up on the wall and we look at them every day. It's just God writing on our hearts. Instead of writing on tablets of stone, the Holy Spirit begins to write on our hearts and we want to change. My father used to tell a, a wonderful story. I, I've, I've told it, I think, uh, at least to the men. I don't know if I've told it in here on Sunday morning about uh, a woman who was in, involved in a discussion with a young agnostic who could not believe that Jesus changed water into wine. and Her comment was, I, I don't have any problem with Jesus turning water into wine because when my Charlie became a believer, Christ changed beer into, into groceries. Uh, that's that's un, unexplainable. How can you explain that? Just that quiet work of the Holy Spirit that makes us long for righteousness. It's something very real. Uh, John Calvin puts it this way. It does not mean that those who, who know the Lord keep his commandments, for there is no such instance found in the world. But it is, but it is that they strive according to the capacity of human infirmity to form their life in obedience to God. They just want to be different. They want to change. They want to be rid of the ugly stuff within. That's the mark of the new nature. So we have an intimate relationship with God, and then we have an inward change. Something begins to happen internally. And then the third uh, provision of the new covenant is absolute, total, final, ultimate forgiveness of sin. Verse 12. For, he says, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. I've mentioned before that uh, in English it's improper to use a double negative, but it's proper grammar in, 
in Greek to use a double negative. And uh, they say not never very often if they want to underscore, strongly uh, negate and underscore that negation. And that's what the writer does. He's actually working off of the Hebrew text that makes that same emphasis. I will never, ever, under any circumstances, whatever, remember their sins anymore. Now, it's not that God forgets the fact that we sin. He never forgets anything. It's a figure of speech. What it means is that he, he doesn't hold it against us. It, it, it doesn't tie our hands. It doesn't cause him to withdraw. He doesn't despise us. Uh, someone has said that uh, one way to think of justification is uh, to think of it uh, that, that we are just as if we had never sinned. And that's the way the Lord deals with our sinfulness. Uh, we come to him with these uh, habits that oppress us, and we say, there, I've done it again. And our Lord says, did what? Did what? As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, you see. We're no longer accountable for those sins. God does not remember them. He does not hold them against us. And in thinking about this, I believe what God does, first of all, is to make us acutely aware of our sin. You can't uh, really uh, deal with sin until you know it's there. It's uh, like the old uh, laws governing uh, leprosy in, in in the New Testament era. Uh, or in the Old Testament era, rather, leprosy had to come out before it could be cured. And God has to let us see the ugliness and the awfulness and the dark, uh, narcissistic side of ourselves before he can do anything about it. And uh, that's why he permits us to sin. It may be odd to say, but he, he does that. He lets us sin so we can see what we're really like. You know, most of us as Christians are armed to the teeth to defend the concept of the depravity of man. I mean, we can quote the creeds and and the doctrines. We know that, uh, as Paul puts it, in us dwells no good thing. But I don't know about you. I I know myself pretty well, uh, getting to know myself pretty well. And uh, I sort of think of myself as the exception to that rule. Uh, I lean more toward righteousness myself. And uh, what God does is just let all the ugly, awful stuff come out. And I humiliate myself. And then I have to look at it and say, sure enough, nothing good dwells in me. And then I can receive God's grace. See, as long as I don't think I need forgiveness, his grace can't operate. In a sense, I tie his hands. But when I see what I'm really like, then I'm so grateful for grace. I I begin to realize again, I don't have any right to ask for anything from God. All I can do is receive what he offers. And I think that's a function of sin. That's an interesting fact of, uh, Augustine pointed out, that God uses even our sin to glorify himself in us. Let's see what we're like. So he can do about uh, do something about us. There's a poem that John Newton wrote that I glued in the front of my Bible and have reread numerous times uh, this uh, week and in the past. Newton, did I say Newman? John Newton. John Newton was a slave uh, trader, as you may know. He brought uh, 
African uh, slaves to the United States during the, the 19th century, 18th century. And uh, had a, a, a blighted past, great deal of remorse and guilt throughout uh, his early uh, life until he met Christ. That's how he could refer to God saving a wretch like me because he didn't have any question about his wretchedness. But you see, what Newton saw is what we see. see. He saw the more gross manifestations of sin, the scarlet sin. What we're inclined not to see are the more gray sins, you know, the little greeds, the the little aspect, the little manifestations of greed, the little materialisms, the, the, the pride, the ambition, the selfishness, the stuff that we tend to hide away. And what God does is just let it come out. And then we see ourselves for what we are. And then we can lay hold of his grace and we can grow. Let me read the poem. I ask the Lord that I may grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I thought that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's transforming power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of that, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart, and bade the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Nay, more with his hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds, and laid me low. Lord, why this, I trembling cried, wilt thou pursue this worm to death? This is the way, the Lord replied, I answered prayer, I answered prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from sin and self to set thee free, and cross thy schemes of earthly joy, that thou might find thy all in me. When we see this awful stuff in us, it drives us to him for forgiveness. And we find there that his forgiveness is total, it's ultimate, it's final. It's over. We can forget it. We don't need to to grovel in our guilt. We don't need to feel hindered by our humiliation. God unmakes the mistakes that we've made and he sets us back on our feet and we get underway. We can dismiss the sin and move on. There's a wonderful picture in the Old Testament of that truth. I had almost forgotten, and, and I was reminded of it as I studied this, uh, this passage this week. It's the sacrifice of the scapegoat. On the Day of Atonement, the priest would offer a bullock for himself. That's because he was sinful, and he had to atone for his own sins. Again, a wonderful picture of our Lord taking our sin upon himself and atoning for it. And then uh, he chose two goats, two male goats. And he laid his hands on the heads of those goats and he confessed the sins of the people. And he cast lots and uh, the lot, the, the goat to which the lot fell was sacrificed. He was offered up. Again, as a picture of our Lord offering up his life as a sacrifice for sin. The other sin, the other goat on whom he had confessed the sins of the people, 
was taken out of the wilderness and turned lost, and he got lost, turned loose, and he got lost. It's a wonderful picture of, of what the Lord says to our sin. Get lost. You're paid for. And then what he says to us is, don't go out in the wilderness and try to find that goat. For goodness sake, let it stay lost. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. That's the total, final forgiveness that we've received. Now, uh, the bottom line for uh, this writer is that this makes the old covenant obsolete. With an arrangement like this, who wants to go back to the old? What's to be gained by going back to this old do-it-yourself plan where you have to just try harder, which doesn't work? The law didn't work for Israel. There was no problem with the law. The law came down from God to uh, to man on top of uh, Mount Sinai. As a matter of fact, the Ten Commandments are called the Ten Words. This was God's Word. There was nothing wrong with the law. The problem was with people. The law was hard on people. It couldn't change their lives. We're the problem. There was no power, no dynamic in the law to change us. That's why Paul says the law is weak and worthless in terms of changing us. As that uh, wise uh, old possum Pogo says, we've met the enemy and uh, he is us. We're the problem. That's why the law was ineffective. All the law could do is stir up sin in us. It's like a thermometer that can tell us how sick we are, but it can't cure the sickness because there's something wrong with us. And so our Lord enacted a new covenant in his blood. He paid the price. He gave us this new constitution, which lets us know that we can walk on forever with the Lord. When we die, we just step over the threshold into heaven, and we live with God eternally with the same intimacy, the same relationship that we have with, with him now, except enhanced in every possible way. And he keeps writing the law in our hearts. He, he takes The Holy Spirit takes over the job that Moses had of writing the law on tablets. He writes the law in our hearts. And then we have this wonderful enablement that comes from God, the capacity to, to do what he wants us to do. And when we fail, there's this forgiveness that never fails. So why in the world does anybody want to go back to this old system and try to keep rules and regulations, whether it's the Old Testament law or some other law you've imposed on yourself? It doesn't work. So it's obsolete. Let's junk it. That's what he's saying. Let's trash it in terms of submission to it and obedience to it, because it never did work and it never will work. The problem is with us, and apart from a new nature, nothing will work. So he says this old is obsolete. By Verse 13, by calling this covenant new, he's made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Now I think, this is just opinion, but I think uh, this uh, person who was writing this book was thinking of Jesus' words that are recorded for us in Matthew 24 when he told the apostles that the temple was going to be destroyed shortly. And, in fact, it was. In A.D. 70, Titus and the Roman legions surrounded the city of Jerusalem, sacked and burned the city, and destroyed the temple. And from that day to this, no one has offered sacrifices in uh, Jerusalem because the whole thing was obsolete. They just might just get rid of it. We don't need a temple. Because our Lord is serving in another temple. 
We don't need those sacrifices because the sacrifice has once for all been made. We don't need to confess our our sins over a lamb and put that lamb to death because Jesus is the lamb of God who, who once for all took away the sins of the world. We don't have to bring our little lamb to that the, the door of that of that tabernacle or temple and confess our sins over the head of that lamb because we've been forgiven once for all. Don't need any of those things. It's obsolete. Let's get rid of it, he's saying. We have an old Apple II in our, in our office, uh, Apple II computer. Uh, it's a piece of junk. And our secretaries always wring their hands when they have to work on it. We upgraded all of our computers a couple of years ago and and this thing, you know, the software runs slow and sometimes doesn't run at all and doesn't have much memory. And it's a mess. But some of our uh, databases are, that's the only computer that will run them, so we have to keep it around. But it's obsolete and it's on its way out because it doesn't work very well. One of these days we're going to trash it. And you see, that's what happened. Our Lord was the end of the law for righteousness' sake. It's over. You don't have to keep the law to be pleasing to God. He just come to Christ. And when you do so, you know God. He begins to write on your heart. He empowers you from within. And he forgives you of all of your sin. Boy, such a deal we get. Why would anybody ever want to go back to the old? You know, we Christians are funny people. We evangelicals believe without doubt, without a question, that you cannot be saved by works. But why is it that we're so inclined to finish what God has begun by self-effort. That's the Galatian heresy. That's why the book of Galatians was written. Paul said, are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect in the flesh? Shame on you, he says. You've fallen from grace. That doesn't mean you've fallen out of God's care or that you've lost your salvation. You've fallen from the grace principle. We come to Christ by faith in his grace. We grow in grace. That's Peter's line. Grow in grace. You want to grow? It's the only way to grow. There isn't any way to grow. Trying to grow in some other way by keeping the law, then you've fallen from grace. You're not going to grow. You're not growing in grace, and so you're not going to grow. And that's the way Paul always signed off his letters, every one of them. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's my mark, he says. And that's the mark he's left on us as well as we read his epistles and these other books, such as the book of Hebrews, that tell us over and over again that this old way of trying to be better or better ourselves or do something for God is obsolete. It is defunct. It is over. It is out of here. We have a new way. It's the way that our Lord opened for us when he took his blood into that holy place in heavenly places. And offered it for us. I'd like to have you do something for me. Would you uh, take your hymn book and turn back to the hymn that we sang earlier, Grace Greater Than Our Sin. And I want to read the verses of that uh, hymn. And then I'm going to have you uh, stand and we'll sing the the final verse. Let's read it together. Can we do that? Uh, I'm sorry, 297. Hymn number 297, Grace Greater Than Our Sin. Let's just read the verses together now. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, 
There where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Verse 2. Sin and despair like the sea waves cold threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow you may be today. David, let's, uh, let's sing the last verse.